0: Um, Our second reading this morning is uh, Romans 6, chapter 1, uh, uh, Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. It will appear magically on the screen, and you can find it in your Bibles as well. Hear the word of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts... Be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last Wednesday was the 4th of July, what we call Independence Day here in the United States. It's a very nice holiday, but I hope that we all understand that independence and freedom didn't magically appear on that single day. Independence and freedom, in fact, emerged piece by piece in an unfolding process. And if you really want me to tell the whole truth, then I have to say to you that we still have a ways to go. Let me throw out some history to you. On July 4th, 1776, the Second Continental Congress meeting in Philadelphia adopted the Declaration of Independence. That's why we celebrate the 4th of July. But two days earlier, on July 2nd, the Continental Congress adopted what was called the Lee Resolution, which reads in part, resolved that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. The Lee Resolution was the deliberate choice of the Continental Congress that we would be independent. John Adams voted for that resolution, and he was sure that July 2nd would go down in history as Independence Day. We think of the Declaration of Independence as starting the Revolutionary War, but the war had started more than a year earlier at the Battle of Lexington on April 8th. 1775, we think of the Declaration of Independence as setting us free. But it would be another five years that British troops would uh, move freely throughout the 13 colonies and British ships would blockade American ports. Peace would not come until the Treaty of Paris was signed on September 3rd, 1783. The Declaration of Independence did not make us independent. The Declaration of Independence did not set us free. A war would still have to be fought. But that declaration was an announcement to the world that a decision had been made. We announced to the world that we intentionally and solemnly began to consider ourselves independent. We announced publicly that as far as we were concerned, an old state of affairs was over and a new state of affairs was beginning. And with that, a new era dawned. You see, until we are ready to consider ourselves free and independent, no real freedom or independence can come. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Rome... Says you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is talking about a declaration of independence from slavery to sin. Paul is talking about an intentional, a solemn declaration that an old state of affairs is over. And that a new state of affairs is beginning. And if you haven't already done so, I invite you to declare your independence today. We'll do that a little later in this service. The word in Greek translated for us as consider is logizomai. It means to reckon or to account or to judge, to regard. It's built on the Greek word for reason. Logizomai is a rational choice. A better colloquial translation of Logizomai would be to think of as. You must think of yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When we begin to think of ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, a new era dawns and a battle begins, a battle for true freedom. This week we continue in our series of sermons through the uh, epistle to the Romans from the apostle Paul. This long and theologically complicated letter was Paul's magnum opus. It is the clearest and the fullest statement of the gospel. At the beginning of this letter Paul announces, "I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation To everyone who believes. Paul then carefully lays out our need for salvation. Each and every human being needs to be saved. We're not born saved. Even if we're nice people who mow our lawns and pay our taxes and are kind to strangers. We are not born in a state of grace even if our parents were Christians and had us baptized as infants. In fact, the scriptures tell us that each and every person was born into rebellion against God, into slavery to sin. Maybe you don't want to hear that. The scriptures tell us that we have inherited a problem from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and that we've added to that problem of our own free will each and every day, With the sins that we heap on top of the mountain of sins that have already marred God's creation. We see evidence of that rebellion and that slavery all around us. We see it in great and gross ways. In the outrageous stories of corruption and cruelty that we read in the news. We see it in personal and devastating ways in our own lives and families and communities and stories that are too small to capture anyone's notice. Paul spends most of chapter 1 and chapter 2 pointing out the sinfulness of all humanity. Beginning with the insane vice of the pagans who not only sin wildly but take pride in their sin and encourage others to sin in the very same way. Most of us don't think that we belong to that group. Some of us do. Some of us used to. Then Paul talks about the sin of self-righteous people. People who know the right thing to do, people who wag their fingers at other sinners, but who are just as guilty in their own secret and hypocritical way. That describes a lot of us. And then finally, Paul talks about the sins of people like himself. Intensely religious people, people proud of their churchy heritage and accomplishments, and even these people, these were to be the pastors and the elders and the deacons of the time, even these people, Paul points out, missed the mark in thinking that their human efforts are what put them in God's good graces. Paul sums up this section by announcing, none are righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Paul presents this gospel diagnosis of the human condition. That everyone is infected with sin and that no one can please God or earn God's favor by their own efforts. To this gospel diagnosis, Paul then adds his prognosis... Namely, that the wages of sin is death. In other words, the condition that we find ourselves in, the one that we were born into and the one that we keep adding to each and every day, is fatal if it's left untreated. Which finally brings us, thanks be to God, to the gospel prescription. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This prescription Paul, uh, is, as Paul calls it, the righteousness of God, apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now there is, at the same time, a tremendous comfort and a grave warning in Paul's description of the gospel. The tremendous comfort is that God's salvation is available to anyone. This is good news for all who believe because everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now as someone who was lost, those words are a tremendous comfort for me I know what it's like to have been consciously and intentionally in rebellion against God. My rebellion against God may have been worse than the rebellion of an ordinary pagan because I had been raised in a Christian family and I knew better. I knew what I was doing and yet somewhere down in my spirit, because the word of God had been planted there by faithful people, I also knew that God was chasing me. I remember a very strange period in my life in which I began to long for faith, but I felt shut out from faith, as if all of my faith muscles had been paralyzed. I had lost the ability to believe in God even though I wanted to believe. I had lost the ability to pray even though I wanted to pray. Now there is a work of the Holy Spirit that's required... For us to have the ability to believe and to cry out to God. We call that work regeneration. The Bible makes it very clear that those who are outside of Christ are dead. And you may have noticed that dead things don't really do anything. My memory of that time in my life is the feeling of being alive but being dead. Like a zombie. Or like a terrifying dream in which you need to run from the snake, but your legs won't move. Separation from God is spiritual death, and we only escape from death when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, makes us alive again, because we cannot make ourselves alive again so that we can finally have the faith to call out to God. God's offer of grace is to all who would come. God's willingness to intervene and regenerate us in our state of spiritual death should be a great comfort. But Paul's teaching also contains a grave warning. For while it is true that God desires all to be saved, it is also true That only those who believe and only those who call on the name of the Lord are saved. The rest are lost. And so there is an imperative for those of us who feel the stirrings of the Holy Spirit to respond. You don't need a lot of faith to be saved. Jesus said that the faith the size of a mustard seed was plenty. And you don't need elegant prayers to be saved. In Luke 18, Jesus tells the story of a tax collector. He's out in the courtyard outside of the temple. He's afraid to come too close. He won't even look up to heaven to pray. And he's beating his breast. And he's saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you know what Jesus says about that tax collector? He went home justified. If there's hope for him, there's hope for us. If you feel the stirrings of the Holy Spirit, don't quench it. Don't pat it down or stick it in a box. If you feel the stirrings of the Holy Spirit, that's God trying to breathe some life into you. He's trying to do some CPR on you, and you need to respond. You can believe in Him. You can cry out and you can be saved. After spending five chapters explaining that all of us need to be saved and that we can be only saved by faith in Jesus Christ, not by our good behavior, in chapter 6, Paul turns this corner where he begins to talk about what happens after we've been justified, after we've been saved after we've been born again. What comes after our justification is called sanctification, which is a lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus. The Apostle Paul quotes Leviticus to remind us that God says, Be holy, because I am holy. God didn't save us from the guilt of sin just so that we could go on sinning. God didn't rescue us from slavery to sin so that we could remain in bondage. Rather, He wants to set us free so that we can begin to live in a new way, the way that He had always intended. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. We're not saved because we're holy, we're saved to be holy. This process of becoming increasingly holy we call sanctification... And it doesn't happen overnight. So what is the barrier to holiness? What is it in our nature that ah, wants to prevent us, even if we're born again, from living the way that God wants us to live? By the way, is there anyone here this morning who lived this past week exactly as God wanted you to live? Did anyone get through this past week without sinning? I didn't. I'm not sure I got through this morning without sinning. Why is it that even when we want to display the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, even when we wake ourselves up, and say, doggone it, today I'm going to be Mr. Self-Control. Today I'm only going to speak words of kindness. Why is it that even when we try to turn over a new leaf, we slip back into old habits? That's the fundamental question of sanctification. Now, please understand that many people who are not displaying the fruit of the Spirit really admire that fruit. And they really wish they were producing more of it. It's not that we disagree with God and think that He's telling us to do stuff that we don't really want to do anyway. Most of us really do want to follow God's law. And yet we find ourselves frustrated. Why? Well, in a word, epithumia. Epithumia. Epithumia is the word that is translated in Romans 6.12 as passions. In the old translations, they used to call it lusts. Epithumia is a compelling desire over which it seems we have very little control. Paul writes, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. The word reign... Basileuto means to be the king of. And so a better colloquial translation of this verse is, Don't let sin be the king of your body, forcing you to obey its passions. If sin is the king of my body, the passions become commands that I must obey. And if I obey the commands of passions, then I'm not a free man. I'm only free when I can rise above my passions. I'm only free when I can choose which passions to follow and which ones to ignore. I'm only free if my passions are not compulsive. We don't control our passions. And our passions change moment to moment. This moment, I want to be buff and healthy. The next moment, I want to eat the entire chocolate cake. This moment, I want to be patient and kind. The next moment, I want to destroy the idiot who cut me off in traffic. This moment, I want to be serene and mindful. The next moment, I want to check my email. Our passions are unstable. Our passions are ever-changing. Our passions are not reliable. And so if passion is our king, we are the slave. If passion is the king, we are unstable, ever-changing, and unreliable. If I'm always doing what my passions tell me to do, then I am nothing more than an untrained and undisciplined animal. Paul writes, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul also writes in Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The gospel is good news about freedom. Freedom from sin and freedom from compulsion. And the process of becoming increasingly free is this lifelong battle that we call sanctification. But before that process can begin, we first have to take a stand. We have to make a decision. We have to announce to the world our Declaration of Independence. Paul says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul, of course, knew that the Roman Christians would continue to sin. He knew, of course, that he himself would continue to sin. But he also knew that the first step in freedom is to consider ourselves no longer slaves. Freedom and independence would have never happened in this country if we didn't first, years before we were truly free, begin to consider ourselves free. And to announce to the world our intention in the Declaration of Independence. Every single person in this room is a sinner. The ones who are blessed are the ones who are able to admit that truth. No one is saved until they recognize that they're lost. Salvation and denial never go together. And the ones who are doubly blessed are those who recognize that they are sinners and they want to stop. The doubly blessed are those who take Seriously, God's command, be holy, because I'm holy. They're doubly blessed, but they're also in for a fight. The flesh always wars against the spirit. The old humanity is always resisting the new creation. But better to be a struggling saint at war with corruption than a complacent sinner, too lazy not to be a slave. Paul says, Paul admonishes, Paul pleads, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is the Christian declaration of, of independence that is a crucial step in our freedom from sin that's our first step in sanctification so does anyone want to do that today does anyone want to declare their independence from slavery to sin Does anyone want to announce to the world that the old state of affairs is over and that a new state of affairs is going to begin? Raise your hand if you'd like to take a stand today. Raise your hand if you would like to say, I'm tired of doing things the old way and I'm ready to do things the new way. Raise your hand if you would like to... Take a stand and say, I'm tired of being pushed around by my passions. And I'm ready to follow Christ. Raise your hand if you are ready to take a stand and say, I'm tired of being a slave to sin. And I'm ready to be set free. If you want to make this declaration, please stand with me now. Some of us are lost and are looking for salvation. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Some of you have already been saved. Some of you have already placed your faith in Jesus Christ. But you're looking for greater victory and sanctification in your life. And Paul says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. So... Those of us who are standing here, let's be sure of our justification. Repeat after me. Jesus is Lord. Lord. I believe that God raised him from the dead. Let's say that again. Jesus is Lord. Lord. I believe that God raised him from the dead. Now let's start a war. Let's start a war of independence, a war of sanctification by declaring our independence. Repeat after me. I am dead to sin. I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. I I am dead to sin. I am alive to God in Christ Jesus thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father God, we honor you and adore you, and we pray that you would make real the commitment of our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would give us a full measure of your Holy Spirit to bring to fruition what we have confessed this day. Lord, you have promised us blessings upon blessings and favor upon favor, and we're trusting you And we're moving toward you this day. Lord, I pray that you would take our lives and make us look like Christ. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.